0: Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective.
1: Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Dr. Graham Taylor. I love having return guests, and I'm so happy to have one today, Dr. Shauna Berman. Shauna is a board-certified behavior analyst with over 20 years of experience working directly with children who have autism and other conditions that impact behavior and their learning. Shauna has extensive training in early childhood special education, applied behavioral analysis, developmental assessment, curriculum design, IEPs, and training teachers to deliver effective instruction to diverse populations of students. Shauna's current focus is organizational behavior management in high-poverty public school districts, designing effective positive behavioral systems at the district level. She also works in professional development for teachers, parents, and other school staff, as well as the effective delivery of direct behavioral intervention services in public schools and BCBA supervision. So excited to have Shana back with us today as we're talking about trends in post-pandemic student behavior. Shauna, welcome back. Nice to have you.
2: Thank you so much. I'm honored to return and talk about this really
1: important and timely topic. Yeah, well, you know, given that, I'd like to just really just kind of jump right in. And as we'd get a chance to discuss what some of the sequelae are of what we're coming out of and discuss these trends being evidenced in the post-pandemic student behavior. And as I know, this is becoming an area of expertise for you. So if you would kind of walk us down through and give us an understanding of what you've been observing post-pandemic in the students' behavior that you're working with.
2: Sure. So as a developmental behavior analyst, my current role involves developing and implementing positive behavioral management systems and structures at the district level. And then I take it down to the site level, individual schools. I work for right now, my my primary client is a public school district that is TK through eighth grade. So, you know, the two-year kindergarten for our younger kindergarten students aren't quite ready for kindergarten, but now are able to attend transitional kindergarten at an earlier age, 48 to 54 months. So that's been interesting. And then taking those strategies from the site level into individual classrooms and working directly with teachers and students and what I've been observing in this particular environment, students have dealt with trauma, they have dealt with a lot of familial instability, and insecurity, it's a high poverty area, and many have witnessed domestic violence in addition to, you know, these things that have come up related to the pandemic. So the area where I currently serve students was hit very hard by the pandemic. And I think some of the factors related to that are probably things like, you know, we had a lot of family members living in a single household, multiple generations of family members living in a single household. And in these households, the jobs that parents had or the adults mm-hmm. had in these households were not necessarily jobs you could do from home. But right. uh, They had to go out and work and there were higher rates of COVID-19 and then higher rates of transmitting that to others in the family. So there was quite a lot of mortality in the area as well. So the students... Mm-hmm. Post-pandemic, you know, they rolled back the transitional kindergarten eligibility age to 48 months, which is is preschool, but now we're placing those students that never had school experience at all or any type of structure sometimes, and we're putting them into a quasi kindergarten environment, where sometimes they will show up for kindergarten, having had very little to no prior experience with school structure Mm -hmm. or, you know, even being in a daycare. So I, I've been seeing a lot of things that I'm calling developmental gaps. So these trends and behavior that I'm noticing, particularly in the transitional kindergarten or early childhood, five, six, and seven years old. So transitional yeah. kindergarten, kindergarten, and first grade are, you know, very um low attention levels so that their ability their cognitive endurance to like academic or pre-academic tasks or even structure in that group environment is lower they don't know how to stand in line their play skills and their social interaction with each other mm. looks like something you would see in, in in preschool like in a 3 or 4 year old and these are 5 6 and 7 year olds
1: right you you know you're talking about something important just as we start out these are systems that can already be kind of highly stressed in some points. And you're talking about this pandemic just turned everything upside down. We were mandated to be isolated. We were mandated to kind of quarantine at home for the most part. So you're talking about kids not being able to kind of have at least eight hours a day away from this being put back into systems that while, you know, let's say kind of pre-morbidly stressed are now even more stressed because the parents not being able to work, the financial concerns, the uncertainty, plus this looming sense of if you get this virus, you're going to die and all the things that were miscommunicated in media. And that, and that was really a, an unfortunate and in hindsight, more manageable situation that we did. We did a very poor job on the communication of that. So people are living in fear, uncertainty. This existential, you know, questions popping up all over the place. So these kids were really exposed to some things that were really challenging in the home, weren't they?
2: Yes, definitely. You know, when there's a lot of stress, especially some of these high poverty settings, you might see higher rates of domestic violence. You might see yeah. higher rates of substance abuse. There might be lack of supervision yeah. due to you know, parents being out of the home at work and children are either on their own or they may have a, a slightly older sibling or a cousin watching them and maybe being exposed to things on screens or you know just other types of trauma. I think those risks go up, you know, when, when we're in these types of environments. So it it's definitely caused an impact. The trauma piece of it has caused an impact on behavior as well.
1: Talk a little bit about and, and sometimes we don't fully appreciate this, but school is such a necessary and not just academically, but it's such a necessary place for some kids to be in isn't it it's it's a it's i don't want to say a respite but it is a safe place and it can provide them with some things that are so necessary just you know for the nutritional development for the psychological development for just an, an, an environment that is safe talk a little bit about the importance of school that we may not oftentimes consider
2: oh yeah definitely for students in high poverty environments such as the title one school district where i work yeah. This is located right next to one of the most affluent cities in this area, which is interesting. But still, you know, this, we have children that are not maybe getting adequate food at home, or they don't maybe feel safe at home, or there's not consistent structure at home. So school functions as a place that is more than just a place to learn. It's a place where they receive breakfast and lunch, and yeah. to whatever extent we can, we We control the environment and Mm -hmm. behaviors, you know, so that students feel safe when they're at school. And, you know, it's an opportunity for them to have that structure and routine and consistency. So students that are coming in anxious from whatever traumas or whatever inconsistencies or issues they're dealing with outside of school, there is an inherent structure and routine to school that children really need, I think, to feel safe and secure and to get those needs, you know, those Maslow's hierarchy of needs, those needs of feeling safe and secure and their basic needs met. That's what they need to be ready to learn. And they're coming into school. Oftentimes I've witnessed it many times that kids are coming into school. They're not ready to learn. Their heads are down. They're coming in with their, their hoodie pulled over their head like this. Won't make eye contact. Won't respond to an adult that's saying, Hey, you need to get in line. It's time for you to get in the classroom and they get into the classroom Mm -hmm. and then there's a disruptive behavior and now they're removed from the classroom or they will leave the classroom themselves. And now I have staff members walking around trying to control these children back into the classroom, but they're stressed out, you know, they're not in a ready to learn spot for whatever reason. And I think a big part of intervening and and sort of addressing these issues is evaluating that ready to learn piece. As soon as these children walk through the door, you know, once they walk through the door of school, they're on campus or they're walking into their classroom. We are monitoring them for ready to learn. And we know those students, we can see signs of escalation or if they're not ready to learn and then developing some trauma-informed or positive behavioral support, social, emotional based strategies or tools and offering those, you know, in the classroom setting or sometimes outside of the classroom if it's possible.
1: I know you have some recommendations for us to come back to a little bit later in the show today about how to... How do we manage those moments when we see a child come in like that and kind of a soft start and, and those kinds of things? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's I think it's worth emphasizing that school truly for a good number of students is probably the safest place that they may have in their life. It has structure, it has genuine concern for their well-being. It has nutritional needs being met. It has rules. That makes kids feel safe. It has expectations. you know for kids can be a very, very helpful thing for them to to be organized by and strive towards. And it has an opportunity for their interactions with peers to be monitored in a way where it doesn't turn into the Lord of the Flies. You know, it doesn't become chaotic and, you know, crazy and kids feel bullied and, and unsafe. I also like this sense that it's important. You know, we think kids come to school and right away we're thinking, okay, now you got to get down to it, got to get going. But there has to be a readiness for learning. And that was some of these kids coming actually, you know, I, I think for all kids, maybe different degrees, and I'm sure you see this too, not just not just from homes that are, you know, challenging or chaotic or maybe not safe, but it's coming back to school in general. We we've been out of sync, we've been out of practice, we're a little uncoordinated about how to sit at a desk or what line to go into, or there is a transition, isn't there? And there's almost kind of getting these kids kids prepped and kind of the, a readiness set for learning to take place first and foremost, probably needing to be considered in ways that we've never had to consider before.
2: Absolutely. And repeated more often than I think we we've done in the past. So kids need more opportunities to practice, to review rules, expectations, and then Mm -hmm. to be reinforced, rewarded, to feel good about following them, because those things that are are supposed to, you know, create these structures of of safety and, and consistency and security can also be pressuring to some students. It's all in the delivery. You know, it's, yeah. it's if you're going to top down, loom over somebody and tell them to get in line in a harsh <laughs> voice and they're five and they've experienced trauma, you might have an escalation right then and there. But if you say to a five-year-old, let's get in the choo-choo train or are we in a safari yeah. line? What are we doing? Or are we animals? What do you want to be? Or, hey, stay on the line or you're, you're, your floor is lava unless you're on this tape line I put outside. Stand on the tape, toes on the tape, or you're, you're in the lava. So that play-based thing that we do in preschool, yeah. oftentimes, you know, as we get into elementary school, it becomes very much about academics. And I think taking a step back is a good idea to look at, you know, are we ready to learn and do we have the pre-academic skills that we need before we're placing kids that, Never had these skills explicitly taught to them. We're putting them in a very high demand situation now, and they yeah. are developmentally not ready. They are not where kids usually are coming into kindergarten.
1: Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it, and and so it's almost like kind of kind of kneading the dough to get it ready before you know some things can actually have a chance to rise. And in this case, the learning process and kind of getting them prepped and kind of in that mode to be able to take things in and et cetera. What are you noticing maybe in the different age groups? Is there, are there differences between the ages? Let's say, you know, TK and, and and elementary and med, middle schoolers, what are you seeing in the different brackets of ages?
2: I think one of the primary things that stands out to me about the younger students, so the early childhood population, and I think about this in terms of the, why would this be? Now that the masks have come off, I'm noticing that Children without disabilities or without a diagnosed condition that might impact their ability to interpret, you know, social cues, these are typically developing children for the most part, you know, are not able to reference social cues or interpret facial expressions, you know, so I'm thinking, well, people were masked. Oh yeah. During that time of development, when toddlers and young yeah. children are really looking at the reactions and the gestures and the facial expressions, the communication, the nonverbal piece of that, they're really learning those things and attending to those things. And they that, weren't maybe yeah. able to do that consistently, right? So I'm seeing a lot of impact in that area. And we're having to just really explicitly teach, hey, look, what if I knocked over this tower you just built? Should, would I look like this or like right. this, you know? Right. And what does that mean about how I feel? At one point, I did keep my mask on and I did a small group proactive social skills training lesson with some of our our younger students that needed some help in that area. And we did a little game. I said, no, I'm going to keep my mask on and I want you to tell me, what am I doing behind this mask? And I frowned at first and they said, you're making a sad face. And I said, how did you know that? "Um, I'm like, oh, how about now? And I smiled very big, but it was covered, right? Yes. You're smiling. How do you oh. know that? You can't see my mouth because your eyes and your eyebrows went up, Doctor Shauna. Right. So I, it's just sort of maybe giving them the opportunity to to practice those things. So even if we do have to put masks back on again at some point, uh, maybe they will be able to pick up on those smaller, you know, little features yeah. that that are nonverbal communication as well. Middle school, a lot of impulsive ADHD-like behavior. So hmm. one particular child, I say child, and he's, I'm not very tall, but he's much taller than me. And he's 12. He's got a lot of impulsive behavior. And I was told by him, I spent a lot of time playing video games. I -hmm. love playing video games. Again, he's 12. What games do you play? Call of Duty, Grand Theft Auto, Grand Theft Mm -hmm. Auto 2, you know, these very inappropriate rated mature video games. and. He's got trouble paying attention. He's disruptive in class. He's been saying, yelling out, you know, profanity and things like that. And then later, it really does appear remorseful. And I actually don't believe it's a reasonable expectation for staff to, to expect this particular student to not do anything like that all day long. Because he was receiving modeling of that and doing these very fast paced video games where your attention span is constantly darting all over the place. And you're getting all this gratification and reward to your brain. Dopamine bursts all the time. And then you're going to sit in school and I look for trends and patterns. That's what I do. And a lot of this child's behavior happens after lunch, as it is with many of our students, the younger students in particular, after 11 o'clock in the morning, it is a steady decline to the end of the day. These kids are tired. They don't mm. have the cognitive endurance in either age range, really. I, I don't believe to make it through a full day of academic instruction, but they need brain breaks. They need opportunities for movement and they want to socialize, but it looks very inappropriate or it yeah. is at inappropriate times. So some of the recommendations I've made to teachers and sites is to Allow that social interaction under your instructional control and structured by you. Put some rules with it. Can't use bad words. Can't talk about inappropriate things. Can't be too loud. But you can have social time for the first five minutes. And if that works for you, and if you guys can keep it together for the next 30 minutes or so, we can do that again tomorrow. Or we can do that again on Friday or, or something like that. Just to give them the opportunity to do that and then kind of ease them into the academics.
0: We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Most of us spend more time at work than anywhere else doing anything else. So why not spend that time in a job you love? Introducing Triad's Jobs Marketplace, the only job site dedicated specifically to behavioral and mental health professionals. Featuring more than 1,000 open jobs from dozens of behavioral and mental health employers and searchable by location, professional field, employment type, specialization, and more. Jobs Marketplace helps you find your next career opportunity. Full-time, part-time, or gig time make the most of your time. To access Jobs Marketplace, register for your free professional account at hellotriad.com bht. That's hellotriad.com slash bht, and then click to Jobs Marketplace. If you're already a member of the Triad community, visit app.hellotriad.com slash jobs. That's app.hellotriad.com slash jobs. Visit us today and take your next career step tomorrow.
1: really good. I want to grab several things you're saying right here. You know, one, we know the video games at a very early age it stunts the growth of your frontal lobe. It 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 delays it. I can't remember the the researcher's name, but she talks about taking you know breaks to give your 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 brain a chance to kind of heal and catch back up. But it literally delays the the the, the frontal lobe development, which is a sad thing for children that don't. That, that have a developing frontal lobe, not fully developed until we're, you know, 23, 24, 25. But in these early stages, being, it's being stunted. You're also describing the the importance that children place on nonverbal. We don't have language yet. So most of our interactions and communication with each other is nonverbal. And you put a mask on somebody. You know, I used to laugh because I used to, you know, so watch the old cowboy movies and they put on a mask and I could always say, well, that's the bad guy right there because that mask is not hiding who he is. It's amazing having gone through COVID, wearing masks, how much it's difficult to recognize people. And you take that mask off and they say, oh, that's what you look like. And so these children not having those facial interactions and we're, we're, everything is with the eyes and the and, and the mouth and just the facial features that we have and not being able to have that really has stunted growth. And you're introducing another piece. In the absence of social interactions, we've relied upon social media texts other ways of communicating you know playing games together online that's been our, our our only way of socially relating so we're kind of socially spastic right now and how do you talk how do you say hello how do you engage how do you problem solve how do you delay gratification how do you tolerate frustration all of these things you're saying these almost have to be retaught or taught maybe for the first time for some age groups
2: Agree. Yeah. And it needs to be done proactively. Mm And I believe in a small group. So another trend I'm seeing pretty consistently across the ages and grades is there is an energy of anxiety in a whole group setting for many Mm -hmm. of these students, and they are not able to access instruction or transfer even a lesson that's given in terms of social, emotional, you know, wellness or whatnot, or a Mm -hmm. strategy or whatnot given in the classroom the students that really need those skills that need explicit teaching in that area are the ones that are not going to grab the content from that whole group lesson and then right. generalize it to the playground and generalize it to the rest of their yes. you know school day they need proactive small group social skills training or sometimes i have to introduce in a one on one setting let's play a game and we work on turn taking right. these are with 6 year olds right. who cannot tolerate waiting 1 second for a turn who do not know how to ask for a turn, who do not know what to do when someone says, no, I'm not done with this right now. Their response is to start crying and having a tantrum. And so it's a lot of working on stay calm and communicate. Functional communication training for all right now. Stay calm, state your needs. If someone doesn't listen to you, or if you're telling someone to stop something, and they don't stop, then you get a grown-up. But at first, right. we're going to practice this. And then I will do it first. And they trust me because I've developed rapport with these students before I try to do anything with their behavior. Right. I make myself the reinforcer first. And then I might role play with them. And it's, oh, right. it's very funny when Dr. Shana pretends to do something inappropriate, right? right? But then I might go out to the recess yard and see a child do the same exact thing. And then I've got to be there to make sure I can model and prompt that skill and then reinforce it as opposed to... We're having a lot of physical aggression too, right. throwing desks, pushing, spitting, not just to other students, but to the principal or you know, five year olds telling the, the principal to F off in my life. Never, I'm like, whoa, I would well, have been terrified to even look right. at my principal when I was five right. years old. So very well, different you, modeling going on.
1: Well, as you're as you're describing this, you I know you you've referenced before, and I want to get into it, this idea about the learning brain and the survival brain. And there's some research they did on adolescents out of Stanford. And they were researching and assessing how stress and social disruptions that were caused by the pandemic have affected literally the neurological development of young adults. And these early adversity and brain developments, what they're looking at And previous research has shown that adversity early in life, we can use the ACE evaluation, adverse childhood events that we can literally measure what's going on in someone's life to see what level of adversity they've gone through. We can begin to assess trauma. But previous research has shown that adversity early in life, such as exposure, let's say, the things we're talking about today, violent environments, family dysfunction, neglect, and those things can accelerate brain maturation in aging children and adolescents. And more specifically, these studies have reported a reduced cortical thickness, which is indicative of the brain aging. And these cortical thicknesses happen in the brains of children who've experienced early adversities. So through the COVID pandemic what they found is there's an increase due to you know the the like we mentioned earlier the increased social isolation and the transition to almost entirely remote learning settings has led to many young adults and children to experience significant adversities in this process and these new challenges being coupled with what you said earlier financial stress exposure to family violence and the ever present threat of you know potentially getting the adverse effects from the virus itself and becoming sick mm-hmm. the research found that those post covid groups in children were more likely to report severe symptoms of anxiety, depression, and internalizing problems as compared to those that were not, you know, kind of earlier assessed. And even the analysis of the MRI scans demonstrated that post-COVID groups participants had reduced bilateral cortical thickness, as well as greater bilateral hippocampal and magnetal volumes. And these are all things that are finding, like you're like you're suggesting here, these behaviors that are going on literally have neurological explanations for them because the brain is aged and there are significant things occur. It's not bad behavior. There are things that have changed. Describe for us a little bit more when you're talking about the brain piece in this, there's a learning brain and a survival brain. Take away us into this piece a little bit more, would you?
2: Sure. And I just, just one comment based on what you just said is, is for children in particular, we don't get to decide what's traumatic for them and what isn't. So it's anything that Causes that child to be afraid. It, it could be a child that is not necessarily in a high poverty environment, but it is in a loud, angry environment where someone That's is right. always yelling, or, you know, dad is stressed at work, for example, and there's a big yeah. fight and it's scary for that child. And they go into a school setting and someone raises their voice, perhaps the male PE teacher, and mm-hmm. they're anxious, but they may not communicate that to somebody for whatever reason, especially as kids get older, they don't want to admit that they are afraid or they don't they don't feel comfortable. So I think it's important to underscore that first is you know, we don't know everything that's happened to to a child, you know, in their in their life outside of school. But if we're seeing these behaviors, you can almost guarantee that that something has happened that has been traumatic, that has caused anxiety for that child. And if we see children walking into school, demonstrating any sort of change in their typical behavior whether it's a shutdown it's an anxiety sort of foot tapping or you know perhaps it's this tense posture which i've witnessed in a 5 year old a little boy every time somebody walked behind him in the classroom and he would put his fist up and then staff would tell me he's very violent he's mm-hmm. assaulted us he's assaulted others And what I saw was a child that had been traumatized and he was not in a learning brain mode. He was in survival brain. And Mm -hmm. when I think about those two things, I think survival brain to me is that whole, I'm in danger. Yeah. and i have black or white thinking right. is associated with fight or flight as well because it's yeah. do i uh oh you know here comes a saber tooth tiger do i climb the tree or run away right. if right. i spend too much time thinking about what the best thing to do would be and reasoning and problem solving i'm eaten right so i think nowadays we're we're having students and staff actually too there's the, you know these things that impact staff especially teachers it it takes a lot to be a teacher any given oh day boy. but but even more so today and they're stressed too dealing with these behaviors and having their own stresses as well but there is no saber toothed tiger at school But we're still having that neurological or hormonal or endocrine escalation of cortisol, adrenaline, those types of things. And we go into black and white thinking, we're not able to process information at that point. So if we see children coming into the school or in class after maybe 15 minutes or something, we see that they are becoming disruptive or they're off task or they're becoming defiant. And the teacher says, you need to get your worksheet done. And we're seeing more escalation there. I think sometimes if the staff member or the teacher then feels some anxiety because now they're dealing with this unexpected thing or, oh, you know, child is not complying, that maybe raises that person's anxiety a bit too. Maybe we get into a power struggle at that point and it becomes about compliance and discipline. And really the first thing we need to do in that setting is to deescalate that child and return them to learning brain so that they can learn.
1: Well, your emphasis here is to there's that old kind of therapy saying, you know, when when you're working with a couple, when one person goes high, the other person's got to go low to kind of establish kind of some equilibrium mm-hmm. and kind of settle this the system a little bit. You're talking about the same thing here with the adults interacting with these kids. It's so easy to be triggered. And you got 30 kids in your classroom and some things are going sideways, and you're trying to, you know, manage all of this. And you're saying if you can, when the child goes high, go low, kind of ground them in some things and they're going through something. It's not a battle of wills. It's not about you know an obstinate or defiant place right now. They're struggling. They're in a different kind of brain mode. They're on the other side, if you will. And you're saying, hey, let's rise above this. See this situation for what it is. You've actually talked a little bit about an example of a, of a recent case. You were involved with a five-year-old who was acting out some things. Give us a sense just to illustrate what you're describing here of how this can be played out, what it can look like.
2: Sure. Oh, yeah. Every year, I feel like there's this one student that I feel very connected to, and I think it feels very connected to me. And I'm able to get them to do things rather quickly that you know maybe others have not been able to get them to do, such as stay calm, communicate, you know, things like that. But a big part of what I do is meeting kids where they're at. So when I'm told, you know, that a child, a five-year-old child, is throwing desks and is assaulting staff members and is trying to, we call it elopement. Doesn't mean running away to Vegas, right? It means leaving the the designated area without permission. So leaving the classroom, trying to leave the school. Five years old, again, five years old. And when I went to observe, I did notice an escalation when other children were around this child. His body became visibly tense. If somebody Mm. got too close to him, he might push them. When he was in the classroom setting, If the teacher approached as he was sitting in his desk and stood over him and corrected him, so Mm. give him a corrective comment, which we tend to do, you know, like you said, 30 kids and we need to get the behavior under control, but... A lot of times we end up correcting a lot more or all the time. And and if I'm in there for 30 minutes, I don't hear one positive comment given to that child so that they Mm -hmm. learn what to do to receive the reinforcement. They're only being told what not to do. And this child then escalated, and was throwing things and things like that. Uh, We ended up having to build in an alternative learning location for that child. So at least he wasn't running out of the classroom and then Somebody has to follow him around, which just reinforces that behavior because it is in some part motivated by attention and in some part motivated by the desire to escape a situation or a setting where he didn't feel comfortable. He was definitely not in learning brain. And he was also very, very young. So I ended up doing some one-on-one, just rapport building and getting to know you, and being very reinforcing to him, so that I could then push the envelope on his behavior and most likely going to get a little bit more out of him. And it was very effective, but I did have to do most of that outside of the classroom, adjacent Mm -hmm. to the classroom, but outside of the classroom, near the classroom, not inside the classroom, because the student did not feel safe in the classroom. And I'll never forget; I still have this little drawing that he wrote. But he would, he would ask, "Was I a good boy or a bad boy today?" And Um, I would say, Oh no, you know, you're always a good boy. And today you made a lot of good choices. And then there was one thing maybe we should work on tomorrow, but I, I, really don't like the idea of of you know using those terms especially with young children it had started to already affect his self-concept am I a good mm-hmm. or bad person right and think about how you give up on yourself eventually if you're just well, I'm a bad person so why even try and drop out and do all these other bad things but we were having this conversation and i I brought a self-concept a little lesson for him draw a picture and talk about something and at the same time I was trying to assess his ability to, you know, form letters and things because he had done absolutely nothing in the classroom. They didn't know anything about, you know, his, his skills. He actually was quite bright. So I think part of this was that he was bored. But the story he told me, oh my goodness, was horrific. It was about abuse. And he framed it as once upon a time, there was a little boy. And then he told the story. It's going to make me emotional, sorry. Yeah, that's hard, um, isn't it?
1: We can't sit with folks and not be affected if we're doing Well, it right.
2: and my reaction, my reaction right now from Mm -hmm. something that happened a year ago so you think about how this affected me emotionally to the point where even telling it Mm -hmm. is causing me to have an emotional reaction and you think about little kids they don't even know why they're doing something sometimes or even how to label their own emotions and he was the end of his he was in it and the end of his story was and dr shauna that little boy was me Uh And the whole time I knew that he was talking about himself, but, you know, he, he ended up moving out of our district and I will never forget him though. He was just a, he was the one I was going to pour all of my, you know, Dr. Shauna stuff into so that he would feel safe because when he did feel safe, he was able to outperform academically.
1: Absolutely. The social
2: piece though, still needed work and it needed to be done in a small group, maybe himself and one other very tolerant very mellow peer who did not move quickly or, or, you know, in unexpected ways around him, because you could actually see him tensing up. And I think, you know, teachers have a good ability to scan the room. And if something is very disruptive, you know, they're going to pick up on it. But if it's something else, if it's kind of a shutdown or an anxiety, or there's those escalating behaviors that are coming before, you know, this larger disruption that is going to result in a punitive consequence, I think we all need to maybe be very aware of not only our own reactions to situations, students, families, parents, whatever's going yeah. on, but you know, what's going on with that student? Are they acting different? And is it a learning brain different or is it, right. Oh, I think I need to intervene now and perhaps offer that student a couple of minutes at the take a break station in my classroom. Yeah. A lot of classrooms have calm corners now, but what I've seen with the younger ones is they've got bean bags and yoga mats and you know, sensory items over there and they all go over there and they start rolling around and it actually is dysregulating for them. And then they don't want to come back to their desk. So we've structured those, those into take a break stations in some of our classrooms where I work. And then I have another sort of, it's more of a more acute student behavior intervention that involves a classroom setting, which not all sites, you know, school sites or districts are able to provide, but it's essentially the reset room, which I developed To give students a place to go if they need to deescalate or for myself, for example, and we have a wonderful social worker team that also works in our district to provide collaborative, proactive service delivery together. I assist with the behavior piece, the cognitive behavior piece, and they're Mm -hmm. assisting with the social emotional piece and we're doing it together in a developmentally appropriate way. Yeah. in a small group so that they have the opportunity to practice calming down and to practice doing these things when they're not escalated. If we send them out into an unstructured environment like recess or lunch, we're seeing a lot of escalated behavior there. And then they come back to the classroom after lunch and the expectation is, okay, okay you should have gotten it out of your system, right? right. But it's actually highly dysregulated. They're
1: more dysregulating, exactly,
2: right? hundred percent. And then yeah. if they get to te- you know in trouble, a lot of times the, the consequences to you are going to miss recess. Yeah. But these, a lot of these are boys. They need to move. Oh, they need a lot of movement as well.
1: There's a difference just isn't there? in you know, general. You know what I love? I'm going to make it a professional comment here for you to allow me. I, I love working with behavioral analysis. You guys have such an acute awareness And ability to look at the little nuanced things as you described the teacher, you know, coming over and kind of standing over the child, giving some feedback or the tone maybe being used unknowingly and 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 unintentionally to be hurtful. But those little things can be triggering. And each child has, particularly coming out of the pandemic, has maybe some unique needs. So I love the way you guys are so, again, acutely aware of the smallest of things that when taken into consideration really can become Part of a really cool treatment plan, and I love the idea too of how effective positive reinforcement can be. Yeah, and, and maybe we ignore some of the negative behaviors unless it's really you know egregious and we have to address it. But for the most part, we can probably ignore most things, and we begin to emphasize the positive, catch them being good, because children yes. want attention, and the, the the relationship that we have with them is everything, everything, particularly if it's a positive one. And being able to leverage that relationship and the positive reinforcement, we can shape so many great behaviors and allow the child to become successful and to see themselves for who they really are. And I think when I hear a story about like this little boy, I can feel you as you're talking about it. This little boy was at a crossroads at five years old. He was at a crossroads where he could go down the bad boy path Mm -hmm. and he could do one of two things and probably both. One, try and be extra good to try and get attention. But every now and then, because he'd be in survival brain, he'd fail. And he'd just become defeated. And then he'd go to the other side this say, if I'm going to be bad, watch this. Watch what I do now. You see me bad? I'm going to show you what bad looks like. So that, that's a real crossroad moment for me with children like this. That can go one of two ways. And when I hear this story, Shauna, you saved that boy's life.
2: I hope he remembers me, but he may not. <laughs>
1: well, if he doesn't, some part of him, 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 him will. Some part of him will. I hope and, so. I yeah, mean, yeah, I hope will. so. And if nothing else, you put him on a trajectory. That goes in the right direction. You know, we're kind of winding down in, near our time today, but I know you also have some other ways to support students in some of these similar settings. Things like you're remembering Maslow's hierarchy of needs and addressing those first, and the idea of soft start and also community team building. And give us give us kind of rundown through these and the benefit of these as as we begin to kind of wind down and how these can be takeaways for us.
2: I think the first thing that Everyone just in general needs to remember these days. It's not just, you know, an education, it's just everywhere. It's just to have that that empathy and you know that ability to understand that, you know, not everybody is going to show up at the same place at the same time. And when I say place, I don't just mean like at school. I mean, you know, emotionally or developmentally. Like everyone is at a different place in terms of those things. I, I think in terms of development, in terms of emotional regulation ability and things like that. And especially with our little ones, our younger ones, we really need to make sure that we maintain high expectations. I'm not saying to remove expectations, but I'm saying they need to be reasonable in terms of, development and where that child is at in terms of their ability to do, uh, you know, any of these things in the first place. You know, if they're not able to self-regulate at all and they're not able to communicate their needs, whether they are a child with a disability or just a child that, you know, doesn't do that for whatever reason, they haven't learned that, we need to start there. We need to make sure the basic needs are met. I think of another case, it was the quickest turnaround of my my career practically. This was another five-year-old family history, a history of emotional disturbance in the family, a lot of familial instability and uh, poverty and just all these things. And he had the teacher, you know, so stressed out. She was really considering going out on stress leave because he was climbing furniture, throwing things in the classroom, just running around. Like he's driven by a motor, like, you know, unable to regulate. And when I met him, I should preface this by saying, I always carry what I call my, my behavior go bag. So the go bag, it's like secret ops, you know, get on a plane and save, you know, save someone tonight. I got my go bag. It's a little pouch and it always has little snacks, you know, things like organic fruit snacks or, you know, little chips or whatever it is, pretzels and little fidget toys and little stickers and things. So I have to have it with me at all times so that I can become the most reinforcing person ever That's to kids right. like this. And the first thing I said to him was, are you hungry? Did you eat breakfast today? And he stopped in the middle of, you know, an escalation. I haven't eaten breakfast. I said, well, it's nine 30. So we need to get you some food. I have snacks right here. Come with me into my reset room and sit down, sit first. Good job. So I'm building that kind of compliance in there. And then I put together a visual program for him. I met with the teacher, you know, doing these things requires, you know, teacher buy-in and training and staff buy-in administrator buy-in and all these things and time. So time to create materials, but. The supports we built in for the student were, we made him a binder. We put a visual schedule in there for him. He's a five-year-old without a disability, just a five-year-old. And when he was escalated, he couldn't respond to the verbal cues Mm -hmm. and any auditory, anything, any commands, any comments, a proximity from an adult or another adult coming to help made it worse. So we turned it all visual and we reinforced him every part of his day that he followed a rule or did something great. He got his sticker and we got to take that home to his mother. And we told her what a great job he had done that day because, you know, prior to that, all she was hearing was he's destroyed the class. You know, these things. she's frustrated. She's got to be at work. So within Maybe four days. And this is a very special team. The site team was able to, and this teacher was able to implement this very consistently. And our social worker there, wonderful. But by we implemented on a Monday, by Friday, we were offering a proactive break in this reset that's room. Good. We set a timer for three minutes, and then you can go to your classroom if you're feeling ready to learn. He sets the timer, and then a minute goes by, and he's like, I don't need this timer. I want to go uh, to my so classroom. Good. That's
1: yes, so good. it was such yeah, a win.
2: Awesome. So those kind of supports are very important. Kids that elope or run out of the room. They want attention, so they're hurting. We don't exactly. And then I yeah. think the thing they're being redirected because they're not in the classroom. But attention is attention, whether it's you know it's correcting or saying you know woohoo, let's talk about movies. It's still attention. They're still escaping the environment. So mm-hmm. something we we're trying to build in consistently right now is, is like a hall pass system on mm-hmm. a breakaway lanyard, and it lets staff know, other kids know, I'm on a break, I'm helping the teacher. I'm going to the bathroom. I'm going to the nurse because you know, we'll see. But what are you doing out here? I had to get water. I'm like, your classroom's over there, and so's your water. You know, it's just sort of giving that visual option. Yeah. I'll talk to you because you got your hall pass on. Oh, no hall pass, no reinforcement from Dr. Shauna, right? So building those visuals in very important. And then our reset room brainchild, which is again, it's a setting on school campus that is an alternative location. We can take kids in there if they need to de-escalate. We can proactively check in with kids as they're getting to school if we know there's a pattern of coming in hungry tired escalated anxious late stressed out you know every monday so and so is coming to school exhausted and hungry and anxious and is going into the classroom and the first thing the teacher tells them to do they're having a major you know defiant non-compliant episode or something like this i'd rather them check in first to the reset room we set a timer and there's you know procedures to implement all of these things appropriately but i've found that to be very effective in helping kids feel safe making sure their needs are met and then also training them to identify how they're feeling and advocate for themselves because okay. at the end of the day that's what we want them to do when they leave when they leave us,
1: right? Really um, good. those' really great. I think you know, things like remembering Maslows, you know, food, shelter, clothing, those are really basic things that are precursors to any learning opportunity. I mean, think of us as adults. When do we get most cranky? Well, I get cranky when I'm tired and hungry, you know, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm I got a little age on me. But we don't we don't outgrow those things, little you know, let alone our little ones that are going through hard times. You talk about adopting a soft start after transitions, which I love, and the idea of talking about the teams that you're working with being really great at modeling emotions and developing, hoping really cool strategies and teaching self advocacy, which I love, teaching children how to speak up for themselves. And when they begin to do, they begin to use their words rather than their behaviors. And I think these are, these are really, really, really great times. Give us kind of a final word. We've got a couple of minutes here. Just give us a final word, you know, during this really stressful time and maybe even speaking to the educators and teachers, administrators, give us a final word.
2: It is a really stressful time to be in education these days. And, yeah. and that goes for students. It goes for teachers. It goes for support staff. It goes for administrators. It goes for all of us that are working at the district level, parents, families, everything. So self-care is very important. And there's some research that I'll I'll also never forget. I saw this research very early in my career about resiliency and children and how it just takes one caring adult in a child's life to be there for them that can help them foster that sense of, of resiliency. Like I'm going to be okay. I'm going to get through this. And that leads to all kinds of good things for kids rather than all these other negative things that could happen if they, if they make other types of choices. So for a teacher to be that, or for a school staff Mm -hmm. member to be that for a child, they can't pour from an empty cup. I love that. That Mm -hmm. saying, I saw that somewhere probably in social media, but You have to be able to, you know, know your own self and, and what you need. And it's okay to take a step back from instruction and model those self-care and mindfulness strategies for students. It's okay to say, you know what? I'm feeling really stressed right now because it's loud. So I'm going to turn off the lights and I'd like us all to just take a moment. Okay. They have some really great visual things you can put on a smart board now too, to show kids how loud they're being works very well, but It's okay to model those things. And I think maybe this is a time where we should be really explicitly teaching and modeling those things. Things like, I'm going to take a deep breath and take a minute right now because I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed or whatever it is. Kids aren't really seeing that. And I think educators have a a tendency to give, give, and give and feel guilty taking breaks and feel guilty taking a day off unless they're, you know, really in the the hospital or something. And I guess my final thought is that if we're going to make it through this post-pandemic situation. We all got to take care of each other and to take care of anyone else, you have to take care of yourself first.
1: So that's really good. Really good. That's a really hopeful message right there and an encouraging one. Hey, let's let our listeners know some resources from you that uh, ways that they can get in touch with you or learn more about your work. Give us some resources, would you?
2: Sure. I'm not on social media all that much, but when I'm on there, I I am on Instagram at metamindmagic.com. And then yeah. my website as well is is www.metamindmagic.com.
1: Fantastic. Well, this is uh, definitely a message of hope. I so appreciate you being on our show today and uh, this idea that there is hope that we can heal if we understand kind of what the, what the origins of this are, what some of the sequelae are of the residual leftovers from this pandemic and ways that we can work with this to kind of reset some things, to cultivate not just a readiness to learn, but an opportunity within the school system and even within the family system. To help kids kind of catch back up to those things that, that can be caught up with and they need to be caught up with, but to do it in a way that's understanding and empathic and gentle and with some really great reinforcement along the way. So, Sean, it's always nice to have you on the show. Thanks so much for being back with us today.
2: My pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: It's always great. I also want to thank you, our listeners, for joining Sean and me today. It's always great to have you with us as well. Regarding our episode today, I want to remind you that it and its resources and all of our other shows can be found on our webpage at triadhq.com bht. So check out our webpage if you would, triadhq.com bht, and explore our archive of podcasts and resource materials. Thanks again for being with us on the show, and we'll look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavior Health Today.